Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Look Ahead podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian, and hope everybody had a great President's Day weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII delivering the advantage. Later in the program, South by Southwest is all about innovation, and joining us is the woman behind a unique competition uh, that will be taking place in Austin next month. But first, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, I hope you guys had a terrific holiday weekend and welcome back. We did, and it's good to be back as always, Vago. Uh, an absolute pleasure. It was terrific also seeing you live and in person in uh, sunny Denver uh, last week for the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Warfare Symposium. Uh, and we'll get to that uh, in a minute. A, a lot has happened since we last talked. Uh, the Senate approved a $95 billion package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Uh, that the House declined to touch before going on a two-week recess. Uh, Russia killed its leading opposition voice, Alexei Navalny. Uh, on the eve of the Munich Security Conference, and obviously some messaging there. Uh, also took back Avdivka after a brutal fight uh, that the Ukrainians uh, relinquished effectively. They retreated uh, after taking very high casualties over a long period of time, and in part because of a shortage of weapons, uh, because we have not uh, authorized more weapons uh, to go to Kiev. Um, Richard Fontaine of CNAS wrote in his note from uh, Munich, uh, it was a worry worst at uh, Verkunda, uh, as it's dawning on more and more people uh, in Europe and elsewhere that Russia is, after all, um, a threat. And yet Europe says there's no plan B to U.S. assistance, uh, despite having struck a series of uh, agreements. And U.S. officials, including the vice president of the United States, was forced to give reassurances that ring hollow to many. Unless the House acts, there's no more money. What are the, your thoughts coming out of Munich and paying attention to it and the dynamics heading into that. Well, look, before Munich, Bogo, I wrote a note late last week that really kind of took some of the data out of the IISS military balance, which obviously should be on everybody's bookshelf. Um, you know, it's really a, a great publication that kind of details their estimate of inventories for structure, but there's also spending and demographic data. And, and one of the things I looked at was just kind of some of the trends in Russian and Ukrainian metrics that they report. And look, you know, what, what we saw over the weekend, what we saw in, in Ukraine, I think is just a manifestation of, you know, maybe these shifting narratives that, you know, Russia was this clumsy ox uh, that got itself mired in Ukraine and a Ukraine victory was inevitable. Um, that that was not the case. And I think, you know, what's dawning on people is Russia still has some significant military power that Ukraine really is stretched thin. And I, I think this is kind of borne out by some of the data in the IIS uh, publication. They show you know, Russia still has about 1,750 main battle tanks in service and another 4,000 still in storage. Now, that's down from their estimate of 10,200 uh, 10, in storage in 2022. And these figures, I should point out, they're the 2024 edition of the military balance. But really, they're kind of a, I don't know where they exactly set the marker, but it's called summer to fall of 2023. It's not its not a snapshot today. Um 
so they still have significant military capacity left. And I think there's just this, you know, I, I keep thinking this old statement that demographics is destiny. I mean, it's a much larger population than Ukraine. And they, as much as they've been, uh, you know, very, the, the, the war, the kind of the way they've been fighting has been very bloody. You know, I referenced some data that, um, that's produced by the Dupuy Institute. Christopher Lawrence has done a very good job, you know, kind of it's a quantitative approach to assessing <clears throat> military balances and i mean just go to his website look at the casualty figures that he pulls out for russia and ukraine and they're really quite stunning on the ukrainian side and i think somehow this gets lost in this narrative that oh you know ukraine just needed a couple of you know western systems and, and game over for russia that that's not the case and that's not what they're seeing so i think we are kind of in a very significant inflection point. The other marker that I think is fascinating is how well uh, European defense stocks have been performing in 2024, certainly compared to the U.S. Uh, stocks. And, you know, I think that's a reflection, kind of this dawning realization that uh, European defense spending is going to increase. We've talked about this a couple of times before, but uh, if you think Buy America is the only way that, that things work in the world, there's going to be Buy European too. And Companies like Rheinmetall, you know, they announced they may build an, an ammunition plant in Ukraine. Um, Saab Group, uh, Leonardo, uh, Henshold, you know, these are kind of frontline defense industries in in uh, in Europe. And I, I just think the market is sending a very powerful message here too, which is this is increasingly going to be, benefit European industry. The thing that's fascinating is, so what does that mean for the U.S. defense contractors? You know. If if these companies are going to be stronger um, because they've they've received a massive inflow of capital uh, and and work, uh, you know what does that mean for their global competitiveness? So there, there's a lot going on here, but um, I do think uh, we we can talk in a second about the supplemental and where that's going. But um, you know the 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 shift in kind of public perceptions. It's been going on for a while. Munich, you know, maybe that's the purpose of some of these events. It's just, it just kind of showcases how abruptly this is shifting. Right. Um, and I mean, it is uh, shifting. It's astonishing to me that as we prepare to celebrate the second anniversary of Russia's uh, second attack on Ukraine, that it's now dawning on people that, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is effectively a butcher. Uh, that's holding hostage uh, Europe uh, and and the world, indeed. Uh, and it was the Estonians last week who released an intelligence report that said that, you know, the, the Russians will be coming after uh, NATO um, and we should prepare for some kind of attack, whether it's in five years or 10 years. Right. For, from their standpoint, it's it's a matter of when, not if Russia is going to turn its uh, sights. Uh, and, on, and the on point America. is, you know, all along there have been these narratives. It's like, oh, there's, you know, the Wagner group rebels. Well, Putin's going to fall. You know, the Russian military is incompetent. No, they're they're not incompetent. I mean, they they had a very uh, poorly conceived initial plan to, uh, you know, take over Ukraine. Um, but I, I read something, and unfortunately, I can't attribute the observation because I don't remember who actually made it. But it was something like, you know, look, even the the best led and trained troops will fail miserably in, in a poorly conceived plan. And, you know, this particular author was talking about uh, U.S. Special Forces in Mogadishu, 
1991. And, uh, you know, um, I think the same, not that the Russians were a well-trained, well-oiled military machine in 2022, but I think, you know, the, the dominant narrative in the West had been, yeah, it's just a matter of time before this this cranky old machine breaks down and, you know, the, the Russian military will, will collapse. Well, those assessments, I think, were grossly incorrect, and you're seeing the consequences of that. Magical thinking, uh, Byron, is is not new to Washington. You know, it was last year that people were saying, you know, Putin's on the run. He's going to collapse. It'll be Navalny and Karamurza who will be leading Russia and will have a bright future. And unfortunately, anybody who knows the Russian system knows that that w- was not going to happen and that neither, unfortunately, of these two great men are likely to make it out of prison uh, alive, unfortunately. Well, uh, and did. I mean, he was murdered, you know, in effect. I mean, he, correct. He, correct. He correct. Exactly. He died in prison. He was it was a death sentence. It was administered by Putin. So don't don't sugarcoat it like, oh, he, he died right. in prison. Well, he was murdered, you know, for all intents and purposes, correct. he was murdered. Correct. Uh, and they're no happier with uh, uh, Vladimir, who wrote a very powerful piece in, in the Washington Post on Valentine's Day. Right. I mean, so no, no, no good deed goes unpunished right. uh, by uh, by the Russians. Um, l- let's uh, look briefly at sort of the underlying shifts that are happening in Congress. Right. I mean, you, you, you would like to note the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and their survey about how the majority of Republicans really don't want the United States to engage with the world. And that tracks pretty much with a certain candidate's uh, uh, announcement on a gilded elevator in New York in 2015 uh, and how dramatically the party has shifted. But given that, what are your expectations of the supplemental? I mean, are you counting on this being approved in some fashion? I mean, the profanity of this is on the one hand, we're talking about the importance of helping Ukraine, but the very people who voted against um, you know, the package that included border money were the very people who are saying we'll split, you know, now they want border back involved in it on the House side, I mean, which is yeah, just yeah, Vago, this astonishing. Is, but anyway, where do you see yeah. this going? Look, the point on the uh, the whole question of the supplemental and you know what's going on, you know Michael has talked about this on your Friday show, but Speaker Johnson, if he brought this bill, the Senate bill, to a, a floor vote in the House, it would pass. Um, you know he's got a very slim majority now. I think he's down. He can lose two votes um, because of the the two vacant seats in California and Ohio, um, and, and you know. What's going to happen here? I, I still think that there'll be something that'll get done. It's probably not going to be in the ninety billion dollar range. It may be half that or even less. It may get tied into the <laughs> FY twenty four appropriations bills. Um, I, I could see that the the worse the news is for Ukraine, you know that might energize something to have happen. Although on the other hand, you know you could get into the same kind of spiral that happened in 1974, 1975 in Vietnam, where people are like, some people in the Republican Party are going to be like, well, why are we going to give the Ukrainians more money if if they can't show battlefield success? I mean, it becomes a you know a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, but but I think the majority, and I, I I truly believe this. I think Michael's continued to point this out that if Speaker Johnson allowed the Senate bill for a full the Senate bill for a full floor vote in the House, it would pass. 
but it's back to the the influence of Trump. It's back to what are really minority views on aid, um, even within the Republican Party. I mean, I think the Chicago poll was back from October, but it talked about the difference between kind of regular Republicans and Trump Republicans. And the Trump Republicans were the ones who were more isolationists, who thought that the Russo-Ukraine war was not a big deal. <clears throat> they were far more concerned about China and Iran, um, but they really did just, they were more isolationist in nature. And they, they want the U.S. to lead without the U.S. doing anything to, to demonstrate that leadership other than thumping its chest and saying, we're the best. Um, but without getting its fingers dirty or its toes uh, potentially crunched um, in, you know, what inevitably is going to be difficult, messy and expensive. So I just find it, I'm hopeful that as we move into March and April, um, we might start to see some movement on this. Um, some of this may depend on the special elections in California, although I think in, in Ohio, I think those are both relatively safe Republican seats, but um, President Biden has got to exert more leadership on this. Um, and and I'll just say this, Foggy, you know, as much as there were headlines about um, some of the papers today about, oh, you know, the, the concern in Munich was over the U.S. Congress. It's like, well, no, the concern in Munich was really over the, the positioning and behavior of a minority of, of members of the Republican Party in Congress. Um, and Speaker uh, Johnson's inability or unwillingness to really kind of just take the lump, get this done, um, and, and and move ahead. And and I think more and more, you know, if if Russia has the reserve forces to to exploit some of these breakthroughs that they're now making, and you really do start to see um, uh, significant territorial gains. Um, Maybe, just maybe that might tip the balance in favor of uh, of Congress, of, of Republicans actually agreeing to do something to help Ukraine this this year. Well, I mean, the concern is that the aid just comes too late because they're losing enormous amounts of people because they don't have the ammunition. And that's uh, unfortunately pretty well. Yeah, and it kind of goes uh, back documented. to the earlier comment about, you know, <clears throat> look, military balance, you know, they've got about. They they used a range this year, which I thought was interesting. But but Ukraine has between call it eight hundred thousand active and reserve up to one point two million active and reserve mobilized for the war. You know Russia has a total of of two point six million active and reservists. And and again, you know at, at a level, I think we've talked about this. You know this is these are two fairly evenly matched militaries. Um, and how they approach war and, you know, yes, there's some edge that Ukraine had from uh, from the, the aid that they received from the United States. They may have been more innovative, but numbers matter in these things. This is not Israel versus Arab states. Um, it, again, I keep coming back to this analogy. It looks more like Iran versus Iraq in 1980, 1988. Uh, and, uh, you know, numbers matter and there are war really the, the Russians have transitioned to a war economy. I should also point out a differentiation just before we get to the AFA conference. At the end of the day, it's a reflection on the United States. Of course. Many people are not looking at this as a minority in Congress or derailing it. They're making the president look bad by design. Uh, they're making the administration look bad by design. 
uh, and are, um, you know, reflecting their presumptive candidates uh, approach to this, which is pro-Putin, anti-Ukraine. I mean, at the end of the day, the reason we're doing this, you know, for those people who say this is all about China, we're doing this in part to send a deterrent signal to China. Failing here, you're failing to deter China. I mean, right. and, and that's, you know, it yeah, should be. I mean, I mean, if you, if you leave, you know, what are you going to do in 2028 if if China, you know, takes all the offshore islands that Taiwan possesses by military force, um, you know, and maybe even the, the Senkaku and some of these other islands. I mean, do you let do you let do you let stand use a military force to take territory? And if you do, you know, we've gone down that road many times before, and it it really does right. not have happy endings. Uh, indeed. All right. Uh, we were both at the Air and Space Forces Association's annual warfare symposium uh, in Denver, where leadership unveiled the biggest reorganization in a generation, calling it reoptimizing for great power conflict, 24 major muscle movements, hundreds, if not thousands of decisions under each one of those pillars across people readiness, capability development uh, and war fighting. What were your takeaways? Look, Vago, I think the, the two biggest ones were, you know, just the, the sense of urgency that not just Secretary Kendall uh, conveyed, but I think a lot of the other uniform members of the Air Force also conveyed. Um, you know, there's one statement that I thought was interesting. You know, we've, we've got to be ready to fight tomorrow's war today. So there, there wasn't really a lot said, and I think probably more should be said exactly what's got the Air Force so spooled up about what China's um, capable of doing. You heard hints about, you know, the sensor network that they're deploying in space, <clears throat> their uh, their exploitation of some parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that we really haven't seen before, and that's causing real challenges in electronic combat. But, <clears throat> you know, it, it just was intriguing, and it, it stood in contrast to a lot of, you know, maybe, maybe popular perceptions. There's just a sense of urgency that really came out loud and clear from a lot of the presentations at that event, a lot of the, the discussion at that event. But the other part that I think was interesting was how <clears throat> there's really much more of an emphasis on networks, uh, on different approaches. You know, I, I go back a couple of years ago because <clears throat> you and I have attended multiple AFA events. And, you know, I just think uh, maybe two or three um more than that, probably pre-pandemic, you know, when Air Force leadership talked about their priorities, it was the big three. It was the F-35, the tanker program, and the long-range strike bomber, aka the, the B-21 program. <clears throat> Whereas there was much more of a focus on networks and integrating um, data and not so much on platforms. The only obvious platform that got a whole lot of attention was the CCA program, that you guys have talked about and I still think is is fascinating for what it potentially represents for industry and maybe some changes in in how DOD is is working through you know if, if we're gonna struggle with pilot retention and fairly flat budgets you've got to rethink you know how you're going to conduct combat operations and CCA is is a really interesting approach to that. Uh, and uh, really quick before we go uh, to take a look at the week ahead, from from your standpoint, uh, the secretary uh, sort of uh, has a reputation for dropping a bombshell or two every now and then, sometimes somewhat subtly. Uh, and one of the things he said, you know, we're 
we're on the verge of going from five competitors down to two. Uh, And he said, you know, if if we have more money, we'd like to keep a third competitor in there. Uh, There is a sense that we want two aircraft from two totally different supply chains um, to try to minimize, you know, impact on, uh, you know, to, to, to try to expand the supply chain, but also not have points of failure uh, in, in the system one, one way or another. What's your sense? I mean, is this the kind of thing that is a well-intentioned, you know what I mean? This, this program has been a paragon of precision and speed. Right. Does a sudden change, you know, a month or two before the downselect decision potentially derail, you know, a, no, a, Vago, a I mean, I think, is look, it better to deliver the capability quickly or to try to expand it to one more interesting candidate, I suppose? Look, I, I think increasingly, you know, and, and DOD has talked about this, there's going to be different increments of this program. So, you know, we think of CCA as, oh, there are going to be a thousand of these. Well, there are going to be a thousand CCA, but how many are increment one? How many are increment two? How many are increment three? <clears throat> you know, there, there's some real, and I think this this tension kind of came out in one of the panels I listened to about, you know, just, and, and uh, Dave Alexander of General Atomics, I think talked about it on one of your podcasts before the show that, you know, if you have a specific um, design, you know, if you have specific goals in terms of range and payload, that's gonna drive pretty much everybody the same design. The real question, I think this is what came out of the Mitchell Institute war gaming that they did in the publication that they released prior to the show was, you know, do you need do you need a cohort of maybe increment one is 200 CCAs that really can fly the distance with combat, manned combat aircraft? Do you need another increment that's much shorter range <laughs> that maybe has a lower uh, thrust engine, but a similar payload? You know, and those are the ones you can you can fly out of the Philippines or um, or even Taiwan in, in these Indo-Pacific contingencies. So <clears throat> I. I think this is going to be evolving. You know, um, the fact that Kratos is still, you know, in the running, I think, for these pro for the programs <clears throat> may not necessarily be the first increment, but um, I think this program is going to evolve. And, you know, we may still get to a thousand of these, but it's going to be different than um, now. <clears throat> to your point, you know, there's only so much money, you know, if you add a third a person to increment one, you know, what does that do to, to subsequent increments? You know, how much, where, and I'm sure that's literally the discussion going on before the FY25 budget releases dropped on March 11th. And Byron, we've got uh, about 30 seconds to a minute left. Walk us through what the audience ought to be paying attention to this week. There are a bunch of think tank events on the, the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, Royal United Services Institute, uh, CSIS, um, I think Brookings, uh, I think Wilson Center, they're all holding events, just kind of <clears throat> where are we <clears throat> in the war? Where, where is it going? You know, what does it mean? Um, those take place on the 21st through the 23rd. Um, AUVSI is holding their defense uh, <clears throat> program on February 21st, 22nd. I'll be interested to see what they can say about Replicator, um, since there was some news on that program out of, uh, out of the West uh, 2024 program uh, event last week in San Diego. And then Frank Calvelli, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Space Acquisition and Integration, is going to be speaking 
February 23rd at CSIS, he had some interesting comments about how quickly they're able to move fixed price contracts in, in a space development agency. So he's always insightful and I think uh, an interesting person to listen to. Byron, thanks so very much. And a reminder to our audience that on Wednesday, our guests are going to be Dr. Eugene Rumer uh, of the Carnegie Endowment and Sam Bendet of the Center for uh, Naval Analyses, who are going to talk to us a little bit about lessons uh, and, um, you know, what to expect next uh, from the Russo-Ukrainian War uh, on its second anniversary. Byron, always a pleasure. Thanks so very much for joining us. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week when we return to regular order and you're on on Monday instead of being on on Tuesday. Thank you very much, Vago. Best to you. And a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. And joining me now is my good friend, Joy Schaffler, who is the founder and the principal of the Distinctive Edge Partners PR firm down in sunny Austin. She is a former U.S. Army spokeswoman who's long been involved in the growing defense uh, and technology uh, environment down in Austin, as well as a key element of fence elements of South by Southwest. Uh, each year in March, she hosts a competition among innovative companies, big and small, and we are partnered with uh, her on the big innovation bash on March uh, the 9th. Joy, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, indeed, uh, the pleasure is all mine. Each year we get a chance to uh, see each other uh, at least once during South by Southwest and and sometimes twice because Fed Supernova is also a very big uh, event down there uh, in Austin. You guys have managed to do this right. Although March in Austin, great. August in Austin, a little bit less great, uh, even, even if the content is terrific. Uh, Joy, talk to us a little bit about the competition uh, you host. Uh, it is open to innovative uh, companies, big and small, across uh, space, cyber, uh, artificial intelligence, renewable energy, uh, renewable energy, as well as uh, other technology to cast a wide net. You guys down select two from each category and you have a face off. Talk to us a little bit about the competition and what you guys are hoping to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. So the purpose of this competition is really just to bring um, phenomenal technology that could help expand the industrial base and make life better for our warfighters to the forefront. So we opened this competition back in um, November now and had a uh, call for applicants. The first round of the judges were done primarily from acquisitions and innovation um, experts from throughout the DOD, as well as some industry folks that have specialized knowledge. And we were able to come up with two um, finalists from each category that will face off live during the event and they are just phenomenal. So we're so excited. We're announcing um, those finalists here. Uh, we've got in the space technology category, Outpost and Mithril Technologies, AI and Autonomy. We've got Mobilized Vision and SimWorks, Integrated Sensing and Cyber. We've got Atom Aerospace and Quantomticon. And then Renewable Energy, um, Generation and Storage, NovaSpark, and Mesodyne. And then the wild card, we've got a Productable and 5VS. So just a phenomenal lineup um, of companies here that will be competing live on stage um, during the Space and Defense Innovation Showcase. And we couldn't be more excited to uh, 
to see these companies in real time. Uh, it is uh, absolutely fantastic. And through you, I met uh, a lot of innovative companies, one of which is uh, Hypergiant, uh, which uh, really has emerged as um, a, a fascinating company. But I mean, what I love about it is you see everybody from the MIT professor who's got a brilliant idea uh, all the way to, you know, somebody from the University of uh, Texas uh, at Austin or any one of a number of other places, right? I mean, so some of these come out of, uh, you know, academic incubators, but some of them are also, you know, veterans or just smart folks with a brilliant idea that they bring uh, to South by Southwest. What is it, Joy, about the ecosystem that's been created there? Um Right. It goes all the way yeah. back to uh, Congressman Pickle uh, attracting everybody uh, to uh, the, the area going back all the way to the 1960s. But talk to us a little bit about why Austin has become a, you know, a hub, whether it's for U.S. Army Futures Command or the Defense Innovation Unit uh, or any one of a number of other. Right. AFWorks is down there. Naval X is down there. Why? Why Austin? So Austin just has one and a great educated workforce, huge population of veterans, um, and it's just a very business friendly climate. And companies are attracted to you know all of these different elements. But I think what makes um, South by Southwest in particular so unique is that you've got innovators from all over the globe who are coming to Austin. Um, the best technology. They'll come, they'll speak, they'll demo, you know, there's all sorts of innovative showcases going on throughout lots of different industries. And the defense industry has, um, you know, really tapped into that with the Army Futures Command doing um, a major sponsorship at South by Southwest this year. We're just seeing so many folks come into town for um, South by Southwest. And not only are they coming to interact with different innovators throughout the community, but they're coming to attract those companies that may maybe didn't see themselves as defense contractors, but they have technology that can ensure, you know, the safety and security of our country for decades to come. So it's just such a unique and innovative um, place. And South by Southwest has done such a great job in bringing together all of the best talent. And you were there at the beginning of this, right? How on earth did a music festival end up becoming one of the key defense innovation events on the calendar? Yeah, well, South by Southwest and, and it's, um, you know, has been a, a interactive technology festival for over a decade, if not longer. And within that, they've just started bringing more and more phenomenal technology companies. Then you add to that um, Army Futures Command and DIU and AFWorks and NavalX, all of them headquartering down here for their innovation initiatives. And what you get is this phenomenal kind of melting pot of, um, you know, traditional technology experts and then the defense innovation community. And so there's just a phenomenal opportunity for the defense innovation community to kind of expand, grow new relationships and show these companies how phenomenal a customer the U.S. government is. Uh, it is uh, it is very, very unique. You see everybody from, you know, the folks who are there purely for the music festival element of it or for the film or the TV part of it and all manner of celebrities uh, and all the events that go along along with it, along with some hardcore uh, defense uh, folks. So it, it really uh, is uh, very, very uh, unique. And, and I think the exhibit hall is also fascinating because you have sort of national pavilions. You've got Japanese and Singaporean 
uh, bioreactor meat companies alongside with the National Science Foundation, you know, uh, computer aided manufacturing technology. Uh, and, and uh, you know, um, I mean, it's it's just a fascinating, fascinating uh, week that's down there, especially when I'm down there for the defense part of it. Joy, break a leg. Uh, looking forward to seeing you soon uh, in Austin and continuing our coverage uh, from what is a great show. Thanks so very much and break a leg between now and then. Thank you. And I just want to also thank so much our partners for making this event possible. You know, um, Second Front has been our title sponsor here. We've got L3 Harris, the ARI, um, just Onward Technology, so many phenomenal people who've made this happen. And so, you know, just want to thank you, Vago, for being a phenomenal media partner and for this opportunity to, to come on your show today. Uh, an absolute pleasure and look forward to having you back on again to talk about the winners. Thank you. Thanks very much again, Joy. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We appreciate it very much. And we look forward to you joining us again tomorrow for our terrific conversation on the second anniversary of the start uh, of this chapter of uh, the Russo-Ukrainian War with Dr. Eugene Rumer of the Carnegie Endowment uh, and Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. Don't miss it. Uh, thanks very much. Have a great day and we'll see you tomorrow.